I'm so popular. We are deep in the cycle of reflecting on love, heartbreak, and depression. And this week we are discussing Lars von Schur's Melancholia and the seminal philosophical text Black Sun by one of my favorite thinkers, Julia Kristeva. And at long last, I am joined by the handsome and charismatic, extremely fascinating figure who should have been on this show um, probably two years ago at this point. Who are you? My name is Adam Lehrer. He uh, safety propaganda. Welcome. What are you doing, Adam Lehrer? Well, I've been uh, chatting with you for a while, and I have a deadline that I have to finish before I go to Los Angeles on Thursday, and, and I also have to hit the gym to train today because uh, I want to get some extra cardio in. So when I'm on stage on Saturday, I look extra lean and defined. All things I love to hear. Um, well, yeah. I have to ask you, why do you follow me, Adam? I mean, I've we've been following each other for so long that I don't quite remember. Me neither. I mean, okay. I remember, I remember, I remember just being... Um, impressed by the uniqueness of your presence like uh a you know a drag queen who um has similar opinions and thoughts has in, uh, and one thing i will say about you is that you don't seem programmed uh <laughs> like a lot of other people do like your taste is really and i think we share this your taste is really personal to you which i appreciate you can tell some people are pretty much getting their entire entire lexicons of cultural references from Red Scare or Jack and then sort of like downplay the influence that those things have had on them. Whereas you, I I know for sure that you have plenty of, uh, you're into plenty of stuff that is rarely ever discussed in this digital sphere of ours. And, um, and that's something that I admire and appreciate. Well, that's very sweet of you. Um, I'm very thankful to have you on. It should have happened a long time ago, like I said. Um, but safety propaganda is one of the pedestals of the entire online podcasting art criticism community. I went on so long ago. There must have been like three co-hosts by now. But And since then, I have been so fascinated by watching what you have been doing creatively um, behind like your chatification projects and seeing ah. like you're, uh, you're the only person probably in history to actually like do Mishima maxing successfully and in a way that's not cringe. It's paid off. You look great. Um, <laughs> the gay men are all very <laughs> pleased about this, as I'm sure you're already aware. And beyond that, I read your novel, Communions, and I thought it was just fabulous. I have a real grudge against um, a lot of like small press, independent 
you know, Amazon printed fiction. Not that your book is any of those things necessarily, but whenever a book comes out and I give it a try from someone who's around, I go in with a lot of pessimism and I was truly blown away. I have extremely strong memories of reading it on the train in Tokyo, taking it to the beach and lavishing in a really just absolutely glimmeringly portrayed world of drugs, celebrity, and culture all congealing into a really effulgent view of human life. I think you're a wonderful writer. I'm so happy to have oh, you. Thank here. you. Thank you. Yeah, that book feels like it was written like a lifetime ago. Um, but it's still, it, it is still important to me because it's like, that was a book of like looking backwards, mm. um, re- reflecting on a version of myself that really didn't exist anymore. Um, and it's still like a good solid, like I, I'm sitting on a novel right now that's supposed to come out uh, February 24. It was supposed to originally come out now mm. and then it got pushed back and then it got pushed back again. Um, these things happen because, you know, editing takes time and especially because, uh, you know, I do write pretty long stuff. The manuscript I turned in was 400 pages and my poor editor doesn't have anybody working for him anymore. <laughs> so it's just him like rifling through my typos and and whatnot. But uh, I'm, I'm really excited to get that one out. And then I planned on taking a break from books altogether, but then I got another fucking gig to write. Uh, somebody brought a project to me, so I have to finish that thing. And then I really, 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 really want to write a book about, uh, I have this idea for a horror novel set in professional bodybuilding world that I'm dying to oh, write. I'd like to read that so I can jerk off to it. So please do that. <laughs> yeah, you. it's definitely going to have like a pornographic element. But yeah, I think bodybuilding is just like a very, I mean, Mishima obviously was very fascinated by it, but I do think it's genuinely the only sports I follow are bodybuilding and mixed martial arts or UFC because I'm not so interested in like team sports or sports Mm -hmm. as a concept, but I am interested in men um, striving and achieving physical supremacy, whether that's just like overcoming the physical limitations of the body and bodybuilding or overcoming the violence of another with your own violence. That shit is all really, really cool to me. And I think what I what I what I think about those sports is those guys are like one of us, you know, like th- these are eccentric motherfuckers, eccentric mm-hmm. and idiosyncratic people that are drawn to these things. And um, and I'm always looking for shared shared personalities or shared things amongst different uh, milieus or whatever. Certainly. And I also am kind of entranced by professional bodybuilding. I talked about i think a mr olympia contest uh with alec and glenn on the back wall um some time ago and watching i have to watch that oh yeah it's amazing i mean and it's just like you said like this triumph of masculine nature over everyone else around them and achieving pure superior human uh, domination in their physical flesh by nothing but their own hands and maybe a little bit of needles in their ass is awe-inspiring and beautiful and also i've had a few beers so please lay off you're going to turn me on and i don't need this to turn into a <laughs> episode do you remember which uh, mr olympia you're watching or who won Mm. was it 90s 70s no it was like i think mid 2000s and i believe a black guy won but i don't remember ronnie coleman could be 
<laughs> or Phil Heath. It would be Ronnie Coleman or Phil Heath. Both of them are. Uh, I think it was great. Ronnie Coleman, but I couldn't. I couldn't remember exactly. Okay, but just okay. I'm gonna get this out of the way. Can you like give me like a double bicep pose? I just need to see it for my own personal vindication. All right. Oh. Yay! Uh-huh. I love being alive. <laughs> the world is beautiful. <laughs> my trap pose, my the most muscular pose, sick too. Look at that! Wow, <clears throat> great. We pulled really in a little wa- water today. <laughs> we really set the scene. Um, <laughs> like I mentioned, uh, we're talking about Julia Kristeva and Melancholia today. And I thought we'd start with Black Sun, but I previously discussed um powers of horror some time ago because i was oh actually no i did that on donna's podcast um for her show the pleasure helmet and i love julia kristeva i was introduced to her by 10 tricks point never the electronic uh, music producer and ex-girlfriend of dasha Nekrasova. He basically um, modeled a lot of his album Garden of Delete off the philosophy found in um, The Powers of Horror, an essay. I didn't know that. Yeah, really interesting. That's how I learned about her. I saw that fucking cover. Um, She is a Belgium woman who has spent all of her adult life in France um, studying and philosophizing. And the cover of that book is this big beige thing and a black and white cover of her looking destitute with her hands on her face very entrancing and i was immediately so mm, desperate to find out more about what this woman thinks uh and i found that in terms of like freudian psychoanalysis she's one of the few writers who writes with like a biting precipice on what it means to be alive and um black sun is definitely an extension of all that but how did you get into christopha uh, the first time I heard about her, geez, it was definitely in regards to powers of horror, and it was used um, in reference uh, in an article I read about Louise Bourgeois, the sculptor. Okay. Um, she's obviously the primary reference point that uh, art critics use when discussing um, work of an abject nature and Louise Bourgeois counts. So I sort of uh, looked in, I read Powers of Horror and I I definitely enjoyed it uh, quite a bit. Um, there are times when I'm not totally sure what she's saying, but that's oh, because... absolutely. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, Lacanian stuff is hard to read and then it's translated from France, which makes it even more so. But what I absolutely loved 100% was the the last chapter she wrote on Celine. Mm. Because he was already a writer that I've admired for a long time. Um, top three, probably. And then she made me uh, understand his work on an even different level. And I think that's when philosophy and, and theory becomes um, really exciting, is when it makes you see things that you already appreciate differently. Yeah, because... Philosophy in theory is sort of a landmine for annoyance and exactly and art criticism. I have my philosophers that I love very deeply, which is like Schopenhauer and Foucault and of course Nietzsche. I like a little bit of Hegel and Kristeva, and then basically I leave it the fuck alone. And I do yeah. I, um. Okay. Wait. There's one more. 
I like Nietzsche, Bataille, Guy Debord, and Baudrillard a lot. Oh no, I forgot what I like. Who wrote Coldness and Cruelty? Wait, I like him and I don't even remember who he is. But you like the book. Yeah. Wait, what is it? I, oh, I think, Deleuze. Deleuze. Yeah, Deleuze. Deleuze. I only read that, though, so maybe I don't like all of him. But I honestly do feel like getting too murky in the swamp of philosophy is a trap that will lead people artistically astray and actually stop them from doing anything successful and will keep them from writing or even living um, from time to time. And it is rare to come across like theory and like true heavy academic literary criticism that is not only life affirming and passionate, but actually like an artistic, almost sort of novel in its own formation. Anything Kristeva does has that sensation for me. Yeah. It's, um, the one person I forgot to leave out was uh, Antoine and Artaud. I'm a huge, I'm an Artaud head. What can I say? <clears throat> because his work doesn't feel like reading philosophy. It feels like reading the schizophrenic musings of a madman who sort of doesn't know how to say anything that doesn't sound like poetry or literature. Mm-hmm. Or even it's like visual in a way. She obviously has a bit more uh, clinical backbone than he does. And she's uh, very respected in her field. But nevertheless, when she writes, she does have this sort of channeling of energy and magic that makes it a hell of a lot more interesting to read than, like, say, one of her biggest influences, Lacan. Lacan is cool because he's so fucking pretentious and French and and mean, but <laughs> I can't I've never been able to read his books. Like, I remember he didn't he say something like a positive like suicide can be a positive endpoint of of uh analysis well <laughs> i sure like... how don't know what that fucking means but thanks for saying it yeah I've, I've always been intimidated by lacan too because um i understand that most of his like popular literature is like derived from lectures and the idea of just like reading those out sounds really stressful to me yeah <laughs> yeah I, I mean, there's when, there's some cool videos of him on YouTube. Do you ever see the one where like the it's during '68 and like the leftoid students are like bitching at him, and he's just like, ah, shut the fuck up! You're all so annoying. You're just looking for you just want to be the masters. You don't care about liberating mm-hmm. anyone. You're just the new masters, and they're like, fuck you, stop. Like all you, of, all of these like nasty French people, like they all are just so sick of what is being thrown at them, and so I do feel a lot of identification with them, um, like especially Foucault and especially Kristeva, who um, is still alive and has been pigeonholed as a feminist thinker for the ages, um, but she has constantly espoused throughout her career that she does not believe in any cultural criticism of identities as a whole, and she believes that identifying cultural identity is supremely harmful to the development of any productive thought. And so whenever she's been thrown into the mud with whoever uh, they try to, you know, downgrade her to, she's always been bitchy and whiny about it. And she also is just such a compelling woman. Um, She got involved with a bunch of weird communist movements um, and she has been married to the same French guy for 50 years 
and she they live in different houses. Uh, she writes uh, novels about all the people in the philosophy scene that she does not like and is just a pithy, nasty, strange-looking woman who writes this obsessive and deeply passionate, um, like, Freudian psychoanalysis of everything under the sun. Um, and this book, Black Sun, is her analysis of depression and melancholy and her approach to understanding it within the individual. And as I've kind of been thinking about my own woe and misery, I really wanted to kind of look back at this. And unsurprisingly, it is life-changing and exciting and thrilling to read on every page because once you can pierce through all of that gloopy glunky language there are real supreme human truths that just come and stab you out of the mud yeah yeah for sure she's married to philippe sollers i believe that's right they just published a book a few years ago um in her uh being separately interviewed about their marriage that's cute yeah now, Philippe Sollers is cool as fuck. I read a book of his um, where he's just talking about all the young women that he that he fucked, you know? Yeah. And he probably still is because they don't live in um, different houses. And there's a really funny moment at the end of that book of the interviews where Kristeva is like, I believe in nothing but true honesty. And then he's like, I believe in keeping secrets. <laughs> <laughs> spectacular yeah absolutely breathtaking but okay this is your first time reading any of black sun um i had you read the first two chapters what was your initial impression of this daunting fucking book uh initial impression all right so uh this is always the other book that people recommend of hers right and um it was an interesting task to read because i feel like most people would want to read about depression if it's something that they adore but I've never been a depressive type. Um, I've been <clears throat> anxious, neurotic, but never sort of like um, can't get out of bed, find life meaningless kind mm-hmm. of depression. But I've been around, uh, specifically have been with women who have certainly suffered from this affliction. So my first impression was that um well, first impression is that she's just writing so beautifully and uh, immediately sort of opens you up to the reality of, you know, there's nothing there's nothing immaterial about depression from those who are afflicted with it. Mm-hmm. And and it opened me up empathetically. But then it was interesting because after that empathy was opened up, then she sort of complicates that empathy and then starts to, you know, she calls at one point. Uh, the depressed non-conscious perverts like they're obsessed <laughs> with their own they're obsessed with their own depression they're obsessed with their own sadness and uh so then she complicates that empathy because there is kind of she concedes a uh, a selfish dimension to depression um which i've always suspected me as well yeah but and she, it, it, you're right. Like she is really like empathetic and like under. I don't want to say understanding. She like she doesn't immediately problematize the idea of melancholy or depression as something immediately harmful. She introduces it, and then uh, through her criticism and through her open heart, she starts to kind of pick at it and characterize it as like an act of narcissism. 
but there's a lot of really uh, fascinating like ideology here. And one of the things that really stuck with me, especially after uh, rereading De Profundis by Oscar Wilde, as I did on the Patreon, um, but she argues that meaning is desired only in despair and that misery and woe is not derived from anything except complete agony. And she says that all imagination requires melancholy. And it's very easy to be like mental health, like self-care, like da 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 and like trafficking willingly in like the pitying folly of uh, sadness and upset and bleakness. Uh, but I do think she's right in this idea that in order to find any meaning, you have to experience deep sorrow. Oscar Wilde says that sorrow is the most true artistic experience because behind sorrow is only more sorrow. Whereas something like joy or joysance or ecstasy, there's always another mask beneath it. Uh, but what do you think of that idea that meaning and imagination requires despair? Um, I think it's true to the extent, to an extent, I don't think it necessarily has to be clinical depression that has to be the impetus mm -hmm. for it. I think, um, I think, but I think you have to experience the, the black, you know, for me, that was getting really, 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 really strung out and, and carrying like that shame because that shame becomes a, a, a mechanism of self-reflection mm -hmm. where you um, look at yourself. You have no chance, you have no choice, but to look deeply at yourself and your choices and how others see you. And, <clears throat> and the overcoming of that um, is almost like a new form of peace, inner peace mm. that you don't, um, like you have the only way to go forward from something like that is to uh, accept it. And that's like, it's a, it's just, it's an AA inanity, like self-acceptance, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> but it's true because you can't change anything. So all you can do is just um, take those experiences, <clears throat> excuse me, and move forward from them and reestablish a persona, reestablish um, a human based on the, the mistakes that you no longer want to make. And, um, but what I thought was brilliant is she on, uh, I took a note of it. She took, she talks about the hyper lucidity of depression. Mm -hmm. uh, the depressed are lucid observers and obsessive inspection leaves them dissociated from their normal lives in between the bouts of melancholia. So even like someone who's depressed, even during the refractory phase where things seem fine, they're still looking at their life from like a third person perspective. Well, that's going to immediately give you um, an artistic eye. Right. Because, because you're seeing life as a, as a TV show, something to pontificate upon to capture and, um, and to project. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and I, but I think you can get there with, I mean, we've all, we've all, I think, I think any bad breakup, I think grief, I think uh, addiction, all these things are mechanisms of achieving that lucidity. Well, it's really funny because even though like some of this is a like, posited around clinical depression, she makes the point, it's probably some like weird thing with like the French meanings of these two phrases, but she's like, 
for the purposes of this essay, being melancholic and depressed are virtually the same thing to me. And I'm not yeah. going to bother yeah. to make a difference between them, which I do like. And um, she is so right about the lucidity that being melancholic provides you with because uh, she gets into like really intense 40 in detail about why this is. But her basic idea is that when one is experiencing true melancholy, they are so divorced from the meaning of death and have become so attached to this object or thing that they're mourning that they are becoming entrenched in a death drive that they can't like overcome. So it gives them like this cold and clear uh, truth about the rest of the world. But it, it's really beautiful. And like when she gets into this like poetic writing, in the way she describes sadness, she says, a sad voluptuousness, a despondent intoxication make up the humdrum backdrop against which our ideals and euphorias often stand out, unless they be that fleeting clear-mindedness shredding the amorous hypnosis that joins two persons together. It seems that although she's writing about depression, she's like really writing about rejection, heartbreak, and the death of love. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's a uh, it's very deep. And I think um <clears throat> I think any I mean uh there's an aspect of this that makes you wonder like if there's actually a benefit to having this sort of cold mm-hmm. realism about things this um because I think the average person delusion is like it's ne- it's a necessity for survival you know mm-hmm. you could be working a shit fucking job and maybe you're not getting laid and maybe your parents think you're a fucking loser and um but you you can't you have to tell yourself that everything's going fine and my life is okay and I will make it. It's like a survival mechanism. And but like, if it never changes, then you're just a deluded person clinging to the lies that you tell yourself. So to be stripped bare of that and to become uh, aware of the fact that maybe it's not okay. Maybe the <laughs> maybe your life and the world is as fucked up as the most bleak assessments of it could be. Then your then your only choice is to gain comfort or peace with that fact, and if you have peace with that, maybe that's kind of what I've achieved. I don't know, but like if you grow, if you become at peace with the misery of it all, it's almost like a fucking superpower. Yeah, absolutely. It's like I don't know the process by which one pulls themselves out from melancholy except like the idea of like synthesizing it into um personal reflection but she's so prescient and uh like oh something i always think about her writing whenever i read it is that whenever you have like a question about something it immediately gets addressed like three paragraphs later and like what you're saying now about like that delusion and that fantasy comes up like all the time in this because she believes that to become depressed and to be melancholic and to 
start portraying that in your own social behavior is like this affected performance of like helplessness and it's this idea that when you are so forlorn and despondent that you begin breaking your speech patterns apart and putting on like a pageant of affectation so that you can deny like just how uh severe it is as a kind of like a coping mechanism i thought that was really compelling because whenever you see you know people kind of performing their depression it's always like a campy little show do you know what i mean exactly it's like twee in a way it is twee yeah (laughs) yeah um and it's like i mean i think this gets back to the the non-conscious or the unconscious perverts thing, but mm. um, she says there's like, she says that there there could be a delight to a morose suffering to those who are afflicted with it, where they it becomes like a characteristic. It becomes their vibe, you know. Like mm-hmm. this is very common in adolescence and high school kids and shit, where like, oh, the misery kid, you know, or that like you know that daria like bitch who's like smarter than everybody (laughs) but uh no fun and just bums everybody out and um yeah it's but but i think when there becomes this like conscious performance that i well i don't know it's 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 interesting because we all perform right you know there's just no way around it like we think about how we are and then we act in a certain way. We think about how we relate to others, etc. But with uh, the depressive type, you know, the depressive type, there's just like such a cultivated set of mannerisms and behaviors that it's very, you know, they become almost like their own puppet masters. And uh, you could see how someone like that could be end up becoming like Kurt Cobain or whatever, you know, like this kid who just like was sad and hated himself and hated his family. And he's just constantly thinking about how he looks and how he is. And then puts all these things in songs. And next thing you know, we have like the defining anthems of a generation. So it all sort of kind of makes sense. And, you know, I've even like, I've even, this is, gonna sound so fucking stupid but there are times when i've been thinking that i was like too happy go lucky to be an artist or that i needed like you know my life was like too easy you know Mm -hmm. because i had because i'm uh good looking did good in school had well-off parents um had no real challenges until i created them for myself uh through drugs through bad choices through uh being a little fucking prick you know Uh uh-huh and um so i think there is this sense that like we do need to uh we do need to get in touch with the darker aspects of ourselves if we ever want to like create anything like even i mean being an artist is all about performance and being you know a showy little theater queen at the end of the day no matter how good you are at it there's always an element of you having to kind of deny yourself and ignore that self-conscious aspect that tells you that what you're doing is cringe and in order to access that realm i feel like you do have to know 
true emotional pain. And uh, even if it's something you invent for yourself or if it's something you naturally feel, like that's how it happens. But it's really interesting when you take it all back to the source because her kind of idea of like where melancholy and depressive behaviors come from is that she writes, I love the object is what this person seems to say about the lost object, continuing the quote. But even more so, I hate it because I love it. And in order not to lose it, I embed it in myself. But because I hate it, that other within myself is a bad self. I am bad. I am non-existent. I shall kill myself. And her idea of this entire concept of depressive behaviors and melancholia is that you have something that you have loved, what she calls um, a thing uh, with a capital T, and yeah, you have the lost thing. the thing. You have lost the thing, whether it be romance or, like you said, a job or your composure over your sobriety or whatever it may be. And you love that thing and idealize it so much that you start putting on a campy gay little show with yourself by burying it deep into your psyche and then deciding that you love it so much that the only way you can tolerate it is by eliminating your own being as the climax of uh, depression and melancholy. And I thought that was very compelling. For sure. Have you ever dealt with suicidal ideation? Absolutely. Um, it was really, I think it was pretty bad for me when I was quite young. Um, I felt very hopeless when I was like 17, 18 and felt very little love in the world. But I also know at that time that I was cultivating that sadness around me. And I knew that, um, I think probably at least partially because of the contemporary condition. And this book is from the 80s. So I don't even know how you could write something like this now because it would be so so accelerated yeah exactly so i knew that there was like a cultural appreciation for that archetype and you could instantly win um at least some form of pity or like compassionate love from others for uh, people who were proven to be depressed by like having to be prescribed medication so i took the lost object which i probably imagined was like the love for my father after I came out of the closet or like the lack of love I had in my heart from other men. And instead of, um, you know, trying to synthesize that into art or do something productive with it, I ran straight to the psychiatrist to give me a prescription for Zoloft that nearly ended my life. So, you know, <laughs> I, when I was on Zoloft and like all the joy was taken away from me and the depression just got like less, uh, less intense. That was actually the worst I've ever been in my entire life was that year I was on Zoloft. Uh, it took me taking shrooms and listening to a Sky Ferrer album to like contemplate my own existence and realize that I like I like myself. And from that moment on, I was like, I don't need psychiatry or therapy or anything. I just need to uh, be myself and power forward, as cliche as it may sound. Yeah. The one time I ever was like, maybe I should off myself mm -hmm. is just like, um, de like detoxing. But I feel like that's natural when you feel so garbage. I remember, but it was like less about like suicide. I remember just being like, I wish there was a way to like 
temporarily exit my body Mm. let it go through all that shit and then you know i'll just slide right back in which apparently you can do now pharmacologically like (laughs) celebrities who get strung out will pay like 20 grand and get put in a coma for two weeks while they while their body detoxes and then they wake up feeling totally free which must be like the craziest feeling ever Mm. and totally worth 20 g's but um but yeah, I don't have a, I don't think I have constant, I'm like death. I'm very afraid of uh, death. You know, I don't know why, but maybe it's being a kike, but sometimes well, yeah, I, because your, your, your faith doesn't promise you anything after that's gotta be it. Yeah. So, you know, that's there's a still times Jewish problem that they don't get to know what happens after. And I think that's what makes um, Jewish art. So powerful. Like Christopher yeah. says is because like, uh, if you, have to stomach death and you don't know where it leads like that creates like a profound performative anxiety that you have to exercise through uh speech and public perception so i can see exactly why jews are some of the leading artists of our time like i just finished reading deception by philip roth and i thought it was like the fucking best thing i've ever read it was amazing yeah i love him He's so, it's like, yeah, like being a neurotic Jewish man who like doesn't know what's going to happen when he dies and is like sexually frustrated. Like it sits right at home with Christopher's philosophy. I get it. Yeah. There's this artist that I love named Boris Lurie. Mm-hmm. He, he's a painter and a writer and um, he is a Holocaust survivor. He was a Holocaust survivor, but his, it was really awful what happened to him him and his family were trying to uh, get out of Poland, but his, they were stopped by Gestapo's and the Gestapo's uh, went particularly sadistic on them, which was kill the mom, kill the sisters, leave the men alive so they can work. Uh, So he had to carry like this immense survivor's guilt, even after he survived the war. So he wrote this book called In Riga, uh, because that was the camp he was stationed at. It was in Riga. And he writes with not like a sadness, he writes with rage because right. like he can't even really contemplate his own death. So he just like writes with pure fucking anger. And I think I did actually go to a therapist once. Um, I'll admit that for the first time, it wasn't for depression. It was for, I was dealing with a lot of anger problems and a lot of it was directed at my dad after he broke up my mom and his marriage. And I was being like a pissy, angry 21 year old, um, who just, you know, I was being a dick to everybody. And I remember very much not liking that feeling. Like I didn't enjoy the feeling of being angry, but I was so addicted to it. And I went to a shrink and I have to say it was uh, semi helpful. Never got on meds or anything, but I would just, I just went to a therapist and um, sort of just like unloaded and there was something about it, something about being able to unload without any sort of expectation. And um, I got through it. You know, my dad and I are good now. Hmm. Uh, but I, I do think there's also connections between rage and depression at the same time. But like rage, you just sort of turn that negativism outwards. 
and then depression it's like you turn it on yourself well yeah and that's exactly what christopha says too it's that it's like you start trying to annihilate your own being as a denial of the lost object or what have you and um uh, there, there's this one line that really stood out to me. She said, the depressed narcissist mourns not an object, but the thing. Let me posit the thing as the real that does not lend itself to significant signification. The center of attraction and repulsion, seat of the sexuality from which the object of desire will become separated. Of this nerval provides a dazzling metaphor that suggests an insistence without presence, a light without representation. The thing is an imagined sun, bright and black at the same time. And, you know, I don't really feel like a classically depressed person, but I am sentimental and melancholic, as I've mentioned. And I know when I go through fabulous emotion and grief, it is like this annihilating black sun that eliminates the landscape. It eliminates the skyline. There's no horizon and the entire rest of my being is like orbiting around my pain. And I do feel like I'm doing that in this like bizarre performative showy way and like language breakdown um, just so that I can love the thing I lost more and like turn it into like a black shroud of grief for everyone to deal with. And even just talking about it now on the podcast, it's like, am I like not doing that to the extreme? And it was really uncanny reading um, her perspective on that matter uh, about how like the, these obsessions with the lost object are so intense that it becomes like erotic. It's like no erotic object could replace the irreplaceable perception of a place or pre-object confining the libido or severing the bonds of desire. It's shocking to read this. That's great. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> Do you, uh, during pangs of melancholia, do you experience loss of libido? Um, good question. I guess, like, my, the one thing that I do try to do is I, uh, when in melancholy, I do try to, uh, expose my ego to others, and the easiest way to do that is through acts of sex, so I may not be libidinal but i do throw myself out more wholeheartedly to like get my face cummed on or something so i can like <laughs> feel connected with the human race <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's funny because there are times when i'm in like a pissy mood and michelle gets all horny close to her period or whatever and uh she'll be clearly trying to get me to fuck her and at first i'm like uh, but you know she'll feel bad if i don't fuck her you know mm -hmm. so but my problem is I'm such like an easy, like it all, all it takes is like the whiff of like perfume or whatever to get me, to get me fully hard and ready to fuck. So I typically mm -hmm. just sort of grit my teeth through it and get the job done. So I don't think I, and the only time I've had performance anxiety before, but it was like <laughs> legit performance anxiety where I was like, so wanting to blow the girl's mind or whatever that my dick just wouldn't respond but I've never had like sadness. Uh, in fact, I think it was kind of the opposite. If I'm sad, I like to have sex. Um, I think Marvin Gaye was certainly correct uh, uh, with that good old song of his. Um, well, yeah, and I like it's, like it's being sad is fun and hot because like, yeah, yeah. I think you mentioned this on the sirens episode, but it's like, 
when you are deeply grieved, like you feel just because of it you like feel like this huge emotional range that you didn't even know you could access before and it's so powerful that it like reorders your life and changes everything so like it does almost make you feel like you want to be alive even more for sure to the point that you're Kurt Cobain and then you can't take it and then you kill yourself yeah it reminds you that you're alive you know there's something beautiful about it like you know it sounds dumb but when our Pago BB died in March, God, I was fucking prostrate with grief. Mm. Like it was weird. Like it, it hit me way worse than any of my grandparents deaths did. It hit me worse than one of my best friends dying in high school. Like the, the, the gaping absence of that animal. I was shocked. Like I knew I loved her and I knew she was like, <laughs> loved me or whatever, but like, it, it was like a part of me, was dug the fuck out like crying for fucking days and at first it was really scary because so much of michelle and i's relationship she was such a big part of it you know just like we have our own little private jokes about the dog like uh personifying the dog you know and i'd be like well what the fuck are we gonna talk about but it ended up being such a beautiful experience of like that brought us so much closer together to just cry for days because you you remind yourself that you're not like a blank slate that you're not mute that you do uh have this great capacity for feeling that makes you human and and i think like you know i was saying that before that i she doesn't make the distinction there in this book but it does sort of feel like melancholy and sadness has a sweetness to it that depression doesn't always have because um, well, she understands like the, the the grandiose like fabulosity of it and it's so funny you like bring up that like animal and like what makes humans different because she like says that animals only experience like behavior in reaction to like the fear of like life or whatever but human beings like feel you know these reactions in like the representative layer like what did she say? The human beings can find a fighting or fleeing solution in psychic representations and in language. And that is a truly unique thing that only I, at least as far as I know, only our beings are capable of experiencing. Like we've invented systems that, you know, poorly translate our strange, like um, primal impulses into language. And inside of that language is like this entire realm of uh, psychotic weakness that we show to each other. And there is something like beautiful about being able to like do that in language. Like, do you know what I'm saying? It, it, it gets, Absolutely. It gets lofty up there, but it's really just incoherently true, I feel. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's it's um... magic. Like, when you are so fucked up about something it's like it changes everything for you it changes the color of the world it changes like the texture of your life there's like this um passage at the end when she says riveted to the post regressing to the paradise or inferno of an unsurpassable experience melancholy presses manifest a strange memory 
Everything has gone by, they seem to say, but I am faithful to bygone days. I am nailed down to them. No revolution is possible. There is no future. An overinflated hyperbolic past fills all the dimensions of psychic continuity. Like, that's real. Yeah. (laughs) Not to keep harping on the the dog. No, harp on it. The dog is sad. uh, I'm sad that your dog died. I mean, yeah, like... Look at this little girl, you know? How do you not love this? Mm. Look at that smile. But, you know, when I first got her, it's it felt cosmic because I found her at this little shelter and all the dogs were, like, so fucked up and sad. But there was this, like, really weird-looking puggle that almost seemed like an alien or something trapped in dog form just staring right at me. And then she ran up to me, and I just, like, instantly was like, this is, I love her. I fucking love you. And um and uh legitimately owning that animal and taking care of it showed me a side of myself that I didn't know existed, a part that could not be that could be uh self selfless, that could be that was capable of love and care. And like I don't think I you know, the version prior to me probably be a fucking horrible husband. Um but like the grief of losing her was the final stage of that process where it was like it that version of me that she brought out was there to stay or whatever like that would be um an irrevocable change for the better because i was able to so deeply feel the loss of something outside of myself and i think that's like an incredibly important experience for a young person, a young man or whatever, because like, this is is why I find philosophy lovely from just time to time, you know, is because you mentioned, you know, Christopher changed the way you could read Celine. And it's like, if you know, you look at these things where it's like, it's not the object. It's not like even necessarily like the, the thing that has passed on from you, but it's like, it's the thing. It's this conception that you have of it and your deep love for it that you held in your person. It's like, when you do lose that, it does spell total human apocalypse inside of your soul. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, she just, this stuff is like, because a lot of philosophy, when it works really well, is stuff that you sort of um, understand intuitively mm. or like you feel that it's true. But then having it outlet outlined there in language that you can imminently understand and also that moves you, um, it's a very clarifying moment. That's why people get so into it. And I think if you there are people who go way too crazy with it where they start like yeah you get like the z or what's that faggot's name the xeno gothic that guy who do you know this fucker thankfully no if i ever see this motherfucker i'm gonna give him a stone cold stunner and (laughs) end him (laughs) yeah but uh where they just start like you can't even have like a basic conversation without them using some philosophical justification for everything that they say but um Kristeva, Bataille, Arto, um, Nietzsche for sure. Uh, these philosophers are discussing the range of humanity, mm-hmm. the range of human emotion. And 
um, reading her, uh, it's like things that I already felt or like these feelings that I had are then given language. I can explain the thing. Exactly. I can explain the thing. That's exactly how I felt doing this. And it's a unique experience in art that I usually only get out of like music or poetry or film or literature, what, what have you. It's like, usually it takes like some, you know, representative narrative in order for me to like feel that. And so it is especially shocking and spellbinding when someone just tells you precisely how things are. Melancholia is a film directed by one of my all-time favorite auteurs who can do nothing wrong in my eyes and I'll love forever no matter what or who he becomes in the future or what shit he dumps out. Um, Lars von Trier. And this is a very special entrance in his Depression trilogy. I've talked um, kind of fleetingly about von Trier on an episode where I, I spoke about Dancer in the Dark all the way back in season one, but... Um, every movie that he's ever made is deeply meaningful to me and Melancholia especially. It's a, it stars Kirsten Dunst as a depressed young bride who, in the face of her extreme apathy towards the rest of the world, she is the only person who, when the world itself comes to an end, she is the only person who can take it with grace. Uh, that's basically the entire premise of the movie, but it is an especially affecting and gorgeous piece of art. What is your experience with this movie, Adam? Uh, I was already a Lars von Trier super fan when it came out. Um, he's, I often say he's my favorite living artist altogether, but he's definitely one of them. Love that. And I, um, I actually got into him. Uh, I remember I first, okay, this is weird. Spin Magazine around 2000, 2001 had a very short interview with Matthew Barney oh. about, about, uh, and I didn't know who he was either, but it was like Matthew Barney's favorite death metal albums because he's like a metalhead. And then it mentioned Bjork, his girlfriend at the time, Bjork. Mm-hmm. And and then it mentioned recently starred in a new Lars von Trier film called Dancer in the Dark. So that was the first one I sought out. And it definitely went over my head at the time. And then uh, flash forward six years. I was already in college now. Antichrist came out. And um, I watched it high on pills at like 2 a.m. on my laptop because I downloaded it and I've never been more viscerally unnerved 
by any film experience in my entire life. It fucking dug me out. Like, I think that movie really does. It's different than any other horror film ever made because the feeling of it lingers with you for so long. So then I I watched everything he ever made, uh, aside from The Idiots, which I wasn't able to find a copy of until much later. Um, So by the time Melancholia came out, I'm like a fan and I'm awaiting its release. And I saw it in theaters. I was all excited because he did the the Nazi thing, provocateur thing at Cannes. <laughs> That's right. And um, yeah, so it had all this sort of like uh, Lars von Trier edge shit around it. But at the same time, it's kind of like it's not his edgiest film by any means. It's so formally beautiful and elegant. And it's also the greatest uh, one of the greatest performances by an actress of the 2010s the best thing chris the the thing where she fully realizes her full range as an actress mm-hmm. and um i remember just that last fucking scene where you know her sister and her nephew are finally coming to fucking terms with this shit is happening like it's there's no escape you know, because at first they're sort of impotently like taking cover and whatnot. It's like, no, the fucking earth's about to disintegrate, period. And then, you know, there's the Tchaikovsky music playing and... Um, oh, yeah, the Wagner. Yeah, sorry, Wagner. And then it's all just enveloped in white light. I was like, this guy is absolutely fucking amazing. Oh, and, yeah. And if the world does end this would be a phenomenally a sublime way for that to happen. Yeah. It's unbelievably difficult to stomach in a lot of ways. And it was, I, I was bringing it up at work today. One of my coworkers that I uh, was going to talk about the movie on the podcast. And he was like, Oh, it was boring. I didn't get past the first hour. And I've always been kind of dumbfounded by that's that, crazy because the movie is not boring to me at all so much happens in that first hour at yeah. that fucking wedding sequence okay in the first hour of the movie kirsten dunst pisses on a golf course drives a golf cart fucks someone takes a bath <laughs> like gets a dagger give, i'm like what the hell are you what do you need to not be bored but i really think it is one of the most algaic pieces of human art I've ever seen. It is so gorgeous. And it's, of course, framed in the very beginning of the movie with uh, what Von Trier told his director of photography were his Wagner shots. And he did these painterly, highly aestheticized, um, slow-motion shots of Kirsten Dunst and the rest of the cast kind of having a vision of what is going to happen in the rest of the movie. We watch her see the planet Melancholia collide with the Earth and end the universe uh, of humanity as we know it. We watch the marriage disintegrate. We see her running through the weeds. We see her doing the Ophelia recreations. And Yeah, I love like, that part. Me too. It's so... That's beautiful. But it's also beautiful in the handheld, ugly digital camera that is wobbling around and especially untrained. It is so human in every way. And I just... The idea that anyone could be bored by this implies to me, no offense to him if he ever hears this, but it implies to me a a lack of human understanding. Absolutely. I mean, all his movies are incredibly deep. Um, It's funny that he's sort of known as a 
I mean, he is a provocateur, but oh, totally uh, for sure an incredibly uh, deep person and all his films have so much meaning and a lot of meaning that most artists today wouldn't touch, you know, like what I love about him is he, there's no artist on earth who so uh, brazenly deals with his own misogyny in his work. Like, Mm. like that shit is amazing. Melancholia has a bit of that, but it's also a different kind of misogyny because it's a misogyny that's almost laden with like a, a respect or a reverence for women. Mm. Um, best typified, like even Kirsten Dunst, who's like a mess in this movie, but she has <laughs> incredible inner fucking strength. Like I really, really, really empathize with Alexander Skarsgård's character because He's this, I mean, he's this absolutely beautiful guy, fucking six foot five, genetically gifted uh, Viking motherfucker. And she reduces him to this like absolute little baby because he loves her, but he can't grasp the magnitude of her pain. And, and I, I, uh, I mean, still to this day that I know what that feels like. And also the the keeper sutherland character i'm like oh god i hope that's not what i would do where he's like control freak control freak look everything's fine look how beautiful it is and then the second he realizes it's not fine he's like well fuck this and he just like i'm gonna kill myself in the horse stable (laughs) yeah well yeah i'm done no thank you the first hour of the movie takes place entirely at a wedding reception, and I'm, you're so right about, like, the degree of misogyny and how women exist in this movie, and um, Christepa writes in Black Sun about um, the oceanic void of melancholy that is inherent to women. She says, it is a feeling and fantasy of pain, but anesthetized, I don't know how to say that word, or joyance, but in suspense of an expectation and a silence as empty as they are fulfilled. In the midst of its lethal ocean, the melancholy woman is the dead one that has always been abandoned within herself and can never kill outside herself. And the female melancholy that Kirsten Dunst embodies as she um, goes through this wedding reception in a state of woe and disinterest is both very dignified and full of her own full bodiedness as a human being and intensely frustrating, obnoxious, and hard to swallow. Absolutely. You know, I got married last year, right? And... I was going to ask you about this because you've been through a wedding. Yeah. Yeah, a big one with a lot of pressure and money and family and fucking all of it. And, um, you know, what's so interesting is the day of, you know, you wake up hungover cause we're like partying <laughs> the night before it was cool. Cause it was like the first time my New York friends and my high school friends ever got to like hang out. So we, we really went nuts, you know, got shit faced and, uh, we're on this beautiful campground upstate New York lit off fireworks the whole nine yards and but the next day i wake up hungover and i'm excited but i also feel this like low-level dread like what is this fuck fuck can you still hear me yeah 
Okay, my microphone just switched off for some reason. Um, I felt this like low level dread, and when I uh, made inquiry into what it was about, I realized I was really nervous that I wouldn't be able to show emotion, that I'd be like so detached because of all the shit going on that I wouldn't even be able to like show love in front mm. of people. And this was like a genuine fucking worry. Um, and I was in my head about it like all fucking day going through the motions. And, uh, but then when the actual event started, I took an edible. So I got nice and emotional, you know, Lovely. and as soon as like Michelle came down the runway, the tears just like spewed out. And then like the tears were beget more tears because there was such relief that I was like still a human <laughs> and was able to like be happy in that moment. And watching Kirsten Dunst in this movie, it's almost like she was experiencing something similar, but she can't. She actually, like her fear is validated. She can't feel it. No, and, and she's sitting in that room and she's saying, I tried and tried to smile so much. I I smiled. And Charlotte Gainsbourg, who's amazing and breathtaking in this movie and is like the perfect sister. It feels like they've always been family. She just walks out of the room in like frustration. And it has that amazing scene where Kirsten Dunst goes to every single picture in like the library and turns them all to images of hatred of like the starving hunters coming back from a hunt with no dog meat or whatever. And with the um, severed head of Caravaggio and his lover and like Ophelia drowning in the river and it's like she has that kind of like Christavian sense of melancholy and depression where it's like this highly aestheticized performance where you have lost some great object in your soul and you are like attached only to the thing of it and all you can do is like flail around performatively and like grin as the cameras are flashing I think every day about that one shot where she's trying to smile pretty for the cameras and looks like such a horse. <laughs> yeah. It's like such a forced, uh, forced emotion. Yeah. It's interesting to think about how like the movie relates to the other films in the depression trilogy. Cause it's mm -hmm. obviously the one uh, that deals with it the most direct, um, but has such this, interesting idea like almost what we were talking about with the Kristeva book where such a performance of depression becomes a superpower you know mm. she is uh insanely courageous in the face of not just catastrophe but ultimate catastrophe because oh god you know what fucking scene i love is um oh shit i gotta use the restroom i'll i'll hold the oh, thought yeah. and come right back please please the earth is evil We don't need to grieve for it. Grieve for it. We don't need to grieve for it. We're all fear we need money. But what does that prove? What? We're alone because I know things. 670. Because I know things. But what does that prove? All right, sorry about that. Not at all. When you uh, 
I'm back on anabolic steroids right now, which make you retain water, <laughs> makes you have to drink a fucking ton of water, which makes you piss like an elderly person. Love it. So yeah, that scene I was just thinking about was um when her sister is just like coping. Like there has mm. there has to be something else out in the universe. It can't just be us. Like she needs to know that life itself is not ending. And, and Kristen says, no, Stewart just says the to earth her is evil. Face, like, yeah, she's just like no, we're all that exists and it's about to end. And that, she has, you know, and it's oh like God, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, and it's like it's really is it it's not that dark of a thing to say because it's probably fucking true. Like maybe it's not true, but like either way, it doesn't matter because like we'll never know about anything else that's out there. We're the only thing that exists because the things that have to happen for intelligent life to exist are so fucking specific and infinitesimal that you you whatever you know it it, it will end and they have to deal with it right there in that moment and one person is like yeah it's gonna end it's fine just deal with it well what's amazing about that too is that she's like you know, you were talking about how, like, the depressive quality, as Kristeva identifies as well, is, like, that you become, you know, performatively aloof and you have, like, this um, clear detachment from both the meaning of death and from everything on Earth as well. And so she's sitting there and she's like, I know things. I know how many beans were in the jar. I've always known things. And it, it's so believable and true. She, like, has this, like, glass-like, complete... Um, understanding of exactly how everything's going to go. And um, like the big conceit of the movie, like the metaphysical twist of it all is that, you know, the depressed figure, because of their detached nature from reality, are able to cope with this calamity well and are the true angels on earth. But it's much more complex than that to me. And there's so many different little plot details going on that give it like that 40 and Chris Stevan edge, like um, her weird relationship with her depressed mom, her dad who is running out all the time and like sleeping with people, her passing out on the sofa, fucking that guy on the golf course. It's like all of this quite like tragic, empty pageant of like trying to make life meaningful and it only becomes meaningful for, meaningful for her all of this despondency when she understands that the planet melancholia is going to collide with the earth and end all of it it's yeah. beautiful yeah like the thing that she felt to be true that this is all there is which was the source of her pain in a lot of ways that, that's why know, the earth is this... evil because she has that loss you know she thinks that the earth is evil because she has some inherent lack in her soul and so the idea of it all being extinguished is um romantic to her and yeah and probably validating in a lot of ways Totally. Um, and I, I do kind of wish, like, not in a way that I want people to end the world or urge its ending faster, because I do think life on Earth is beautiful. But, um, like, it makes sense that Von Trier is kind of, like, hung up on, like, Nazi aestheticism and, like, using, like, Wagner music because he understood, like, the apocalyptic drive and all of that. And there is a romance to, instead of you know, screaming about the end of the world and, like, getting so worked up about it than just laying down and letting it fuck you, like, literally. And I get so depressed when I see people having, like, these panic attacks about, like, whatever, like, AI-generated art or, like, democratic politics in America. It's, like, 
you know, I feel all of that dread too, but like life on earth is evil. Like it's all going to die. So you should lay out on the beautiful riverside hill like Kirsten Dunst does. Get your tits out and like let the fucking end of the world fuck you whole. Exactly. Well, and it's like, it is evil because there's an inherent, um, there's like the brutal irony of we're given sentience, we're gifted mm-hmm. sentience, and we have to know that we're going to die. So that's like a brutal reality to impose on an entire species. Like, I think humans are the only ones who understand. I think, I think some other animals kind of understand death in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but either way, there's just like, such a brutality to that but that's also the same thing that creates beauty is um once you accept that you fill the world up with beauty and um but that's also the thing that makes you cling you know so her 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 sister does have this kind of beautiful life and um child and a husband who loves her in his own way um so she's like clinging she Mm. can't accept it but just because you've created beauty doesn't mean it's not ephemeral which is of course another evil reality uh so yeah lars is like it's crazy how much he must think about his own work and what he's trying to say because there are I read this really interesting article once. I forget where. It was some academic thing. But the person basically argued that Lars von Trier is the greatest living artist, period. Um, And then wrote at length because his works express every aspect of what it's like to be a person, to be a human, in ways that most artists can only, like, really hint at. Mm. Um. And I think that's completely true because every single one of his films has um, different, they often have different uh, themes or broadening of themes that he's used uh, over and over, but it's so vast. Like there's such a landscape of fucking meaning to parse through this shit and you can never really like, there's never enough to talk about with his films. Like there's so fucking much philosophical and um human insight and in in pretty much everything he's ever made i don't know if you watched the kingdom recently the the new season in the new season yet man it was fucking sick and unfortunately it only really aired on movie here so only like people like me have been able to see it but um it's sort of him doing like a postmodern reflection on who he is as an artist. Um, and, but again, there's still all this philosophical ramifications to it. Uh, and it's funny too, cause like people don't really understand how film, how important his films are until a few years after they've been out, you know? Oh, totally. Like this was the case with all the movies from the depression trilogy and people still are there like, with, like, the house that Jack builds. Everyone hates it. I like it. And people will yeah. come around to it eventually when they like, realize it post-text. But, yeah. Yeah, I think it's um, more flawed than his other movies, but there's still a lot of good shit in there. And But with the Depression trilogy, it's interesting because it's probably the his masterwork, right? Mm. 
and it saw him grow in popularity, but it also was the first time that his prestige in elite film circles was diminishing. Because in the 90s, he was like the king of can. Like, every fucking thing he did was just met with worship and praise. But by the time, you know, Antichrist was such a fucking jolt that it really fucked a lot of people up. And it started the misogyny allegations and why'd she cut her clit off, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but um, he had to, like, Antichrist is the palate cleanser, right? It's like the new, it, this is a new version of me. This is a new, this is like, I'm going somewhere way deeper than we've ever gone before. If you can't handle it, I'm going to give you this thing. You're going to check the fuck out because I just devastated you. Mm. And then melancholia is the, you've been devastated. Now let's get a more mournful and contemplative um, reading of this kind of theme. Yeah. And it is beautiful because, you know, of course, there is the theme that the earth is evil and uh, destruction is inevitable and maybe even joyous. Like, I keep bringing up that scene of Kirsten Dunst as Justine laying on the hillside, but like with that Wagner music just like soaring in the moonlight, it's like you're meant to romantically associate with her that like the planet that is about to collide with earth and obliterate all life as we know it is beautiful and erotic which is you know very much a christopher thing like she's always the literal black sun is going to like obscure everything and that's the most romantic possibility for these people and and i get it so much because like when you do feel so much like intense like whoa and yet like simultaneously passionate about humanity and the things that you love like the only thing you want to do is sow it into your soul let it inseminate you and then die yeah i've never seen that sentiment like affected in a film ever do you know that there was a stage adaptation of this that's cute i'd watch that (laughs) me too fuck i want to see that but um yeah the, the 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 reaction was so interesting to this film it's it's kind of got mediocre reviews which is just like crazy because it's so obviously a masterpiece but then if you factor in the metacritic which is the more elite critics then it gets universal acclaim Mm. so again it's just like this is some shit for real heads you know i like that lars von trier is so uncompromising he's truly one of the most uncompromising filmmakers alive um oh fuck me what's that that's uh, my goddamn doctor. I'll I'll just tell him I'll call him back. <laughs> Go for it. Hey, Justin, I'm in the middle of an interview right now. Do you <laughs> perhaps have time to um, talk in, in a little while? All right. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, sorry. I got my physical done today. He's probably going to light me up about my high cholesterol or something. Amazing. But no, you're right. Like, it it really takes, like, a, a singular kind of bold artist to even, like, experience those emotions within themselves consciously and then even more so convey it in a, you know, vaguely widely distributed film, like... Um, you know, even though it was, you know, not the biggest critical success, like this was dumped onto Netflix. Tons of people have seen it. And Kirsten Dunst won the best actress it can. So it's like you can like really feel um, 
like rallying support behind it but the idea that he was like so in touch with his emotionality kind of like inspires me to wallow in my dread so that i can eventually produce something that's even a uh, 0.01% as real as this is yeah yeah i mean and his vision was always there i mean even like his student films are pretty interesting totally but I think what happens with the depression show, like he really relished in um, the 2000s. Like, you know, if you ever watch the old episodes of the kingdom, they always ended with him over the credits, like dressed like a little prankster and then giving like a little poetic sermon mm-hmm. about what happened in the show. Like he liked his, uh, he's sort of into his idea of himself as a provocateur, which is cool. Like I like that too, but I think, the depression trilogy marks um, him sort of leaving that behind. Total earnesty. Yeah. Into something m- more um, personal and honest, which is crazy because Antichrist is obviously the most provocative thing he ever made, but it's not an edgelord movie. Like, no. And it's, it's funny because the golden heart movies are way, 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 way more edgelordy. Like I, not edgelordy necessarily, but like, I, I don't know. It's like, those movies are ridiculing the audience 100%. And he doesn't do that in Melancholia. The movie is sweet and the slow death of watching their lives unravel as the second hour depicts, it's very intense and painful and not, it's not cruel. Um, And I want to talk about the end of the film, which includes Kirsten Dunst, Charlotte Gainsbourg, and Charlotte Gainsbourg's son in, in the film, setting up a teepee of sticks and sitting beneath it as the world uh, begins the end. It features the iconic shot of them all holding hands before Charlotte Rampling begins to freak out, grasps her head in terror, and then they are all eliminated to the sound of Wagner's music. Um, This is ultimately the depressive fantasy that such a thing could occur. Um, But it is this total summation on human life that I just can't, describe the power of i i haven't seen anything else like this in contemporary or classic cinema it's rare in art and it is so breathtaking yeah it uh it's incredible because it makes do you ever read thomas Ligotti? Mm-mm. he wrote this book called the conspiracy against the human race where he basically <laughs> argues that human sentience is a curse Mm-hmm. And that the most rational and beautiful and meaningful thing we could do as a species is to basically uh, come together hand in hand, refuse to breed and to walk into self-annihilation. I'm like, relax, guy. You know, it's a good <laughs> book, though. <laughs> but um, what's interesting about this is they don't have a choice here. And that's exactly what they do. They take each other hand in hand, uh, huddle together and march into annihilation. And God, there's just like, if you want to like, we're always trying, I feel like artists, we're always trying to show situations that bring out the reality of who a human is. Right. And Lars von Trier is an absolute expert in this. Like, Mm -hmm. You know, the the father, he's a well-meaning guy. He loves his family. But in the face of this, he's a fucking 
coward. Mm. He can't deal with it. He can't be there for the people who love. So he does the selfish thing and just fucking rifles a bottle of fucking Xanax down his throat and passes the fuck out. Um, but, you know, the beautiful thing would be to be as stone faced as you can grip onto the people that you're close to mm-hmm. and to just wait for it to happen, you know, and it's not going to be painful. It's, it's going to be so fast. There's like a million ways you could die. That would be more brutal. So he's like imagining this totalizing, but painless uh, annihilation of all human life. And, you know, he's like, what's cool about it is he's not showing it in this dark way. He, he does find it genuinely beautiful. And he communicates that to us that like, they're able to take each other hand in hand and just face this as it ends. It's something inspiring about that. Like, yeah. we wish that that's how we would behave in the face of something like this. It's an idealized version of these characters in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it's horrifying to see Charlotte Rampling just like, you know, plunge into terror and like rip her hand away from her son, you know, and that that's like the the terrifying element there. But yeah, I, I can see how he kind of has like in the same way that Justine does with the planet Melancholia, like Von Trier does like with the potential end of the world, because like using the prelude from Tristan and Isolde, which is, you know, this like great story of like love so powerful that it metaphysically rearranges the universe and then inevitably ends in death as, you know, all love does, you know, I can see him like shrinking and simultaneously augmenting like the entire meaning of what it means to be alive and to feel pain and he synthesizes the terrifying like depths of depression and its malfunction into society and turns it into something meaningful and even though like the sensation you're left with it with that just terrifying final shot is you know one of innate horror but it is like one in which in your gut you can feel all beings at a single moment it's very difficult to accomplish that in art and it's even more difficult i think to find it within one's own despair and it is really truly a a transformational and beautiful thing that he was able to do that absolutely absolutely well those who don't fight won't survive here we go to support the continuation of your favorite online experimental art audio project please pledge five dollars to i'm so popular on patreon.com slash i'm so popular the bonus episodes of the show the essential untucked continuation sirens as well as access to the discord and chichi's book club
Tô 